This episode of the Noble Warrior Podcast is brought to you by C.K. Lynn Mindset Coaching for Entrepreneurs. Whatever mental blocks in your life you want to overcome as an entrepreneur, fears of failure, inability to take the actions you know there is to take, fear of success, three steps forward and four steps back, or even that thought of not feeling deserving after achieving all the success. Coaching is one of the most valuable tools you can have. It's an investment in yourself, and it can yield some of the highest returns. C.K. Lin has the skills that will empower you to achieve the most accelerated results you've dreamed of. To help you get started, C.K. is offering podcast listeners a free strategy session with him, a $1,000 value. Visit TalkWithCK.com and schedule your free session today. Hello, everyone. In my conversation with Dennis Naughton, we speak about ayahuasca, which is also called daimei in Dennis's Santa Daime religious tradition. Ayahuasca is a beautiful and sacred plant medicine from the Amazonian rainforest. Dennis has spent more than 18 months working with the indigenous Amazonian tribe, learning about plant medicines. He has also spent a considerable amount of time and received extensive instruction in the religious ceremony of the Santa Daime faith. Dennis is an ordained padrino in the church, which means he's a leader of the Santa Daime congregation. Dennis emphasizes that when we speak about plant medicine, this phrase has a special meaning. It does not mean medicine, drug, or supplement in the Western sense of those words. Dennis is not a healthcare professional. He does not claim that ayahuasca and ayahuasca vine are intended to prevent, diagnose, treat, or cure any of physical diseases or other physical conditions. Indigenous people of the Amazons have used ayahuasca and the ayahuasca vine for thousands of years, using and honoring them as a wise plant teachers that helps people on their spiritual path. The sense of having plant teachers helping on a spiritual path and helping us healing spiritually is what we mean when we say plant medicine. Then it's emphasized that this is not us persuading or convincing others using ayahuasca or other sacred plant teachers. This is a deeply personal decision. If you choose to invite these plant teachers into your life, it's critical to work with experienced facilitators who have deep integrity and extensive training in an established spiritual tradition and in harmony with the law wherever you are. Also, if you have any physical or psychological ailments or conditions, you should consult with a physician before considering taking any plant medicines. None of what Dennis and I discuss in this podcast is intended to be medical advice. So now, let's welcome Dennis Naughton. Why, why microdosing? How, how did you end up developing that program? In my own journey, connecting with plant medicines. Hmm. I started to connect with plant medicine in 2011. Hmm. I went to Peru to a retreat, mm-hmm. ayahuasca retreat. Mm-hmm. Three ceremonies in the Sacred Valley in Peru. Mm. Beautiful place. Mm. Um, those three ceremonies were very um, beautiful, powerful experience. Mm. And coming back to Amsterdam, where I was living at the time, I was a classical musician, mm. professional classical musician. It was very um, interesting to see what those experiences did to me, because I kind of expected it to be like a once-in-a-lifetime experience. A oh, one-time only. That was my full understanding of it, even when I came back. Mm. I don't necessarily have to go back. I was just going to do these ceremonies one time and, you know, 
they're going to be transformational and, and that's it. I just continue my life as it is and maybe some changes come for that. And I would be very grateful for those changes. But I was not suspecting in any way that it would become you know, a, a bigger part of my life. Mm. And then when I saw the impact that those experiences had on my life, that has started to change my perspective, starting to change my inner world, starting to shift the things I found important, and starting to learn more about where my true passion is and where my true passion actually always has been, but not really acknowledging it or not really understanding that. Mm. For example, in music, you know, I thought it was, was my life mission to play in the world's best orchestras. And I did. Mm. And then I started to see, oh wow, this is maybe not the way um, I'm supposed to share music or be connected to music. Because, you know, we sit in, in, in a suit and our tails on a, on a concert stage and the people that are listening sit you know, lower mm. in the public mm. listening. And so there's like a disconnect I started to see between the people listening and the people playing music. And also seeing just like in the classical music world, there was quite, um, yeah, in a way, sometimes a harsh world mm. of ego and like sharp shoulders and pushing up and or kind of like competing with each other. Mm. And when I started to see that more clear, I was like, oh, wow, maybe this is, is not my world. Maybe there's another way to, to connect with music. And when that those kind of transformations gently start to happen inside of myself, mm. I came to the real, realization of like, oh, wow, uh, maybe slowly my journey as a classical musician is, is ending. Mm. And I was like somebody that pulled the ground under my feet. Like, wow, wow what's next? Mm. Like my whole world started to shift. Mm. And it was a strong journey of, let's say, two years uh, that ended in uh, me opening up a center in Peru for healing. Mm. Um, with plant medicines, with diet, with natural medicines, with yeah, other physical therapies like massage and you know, colon hydrotherapy and just like emotional therapies. Um, yeah, really working with people to get them more close to, let's say, their destiny, mm. close to their calling, close to their heart, close to the connection to their soul. Mm. Um, that was a whole journey. And when I start to study that journey deeper, then start to offer plant medicines to people and start to work with plant medicines and start to learn more about them and start to dive deeper into that study of what they are and, and why they come out of the jungle, out of the indigenous tribes, into the Western world in this time. Mm. And then I saw clearly, like, the Western world, you know, is so different than the world of the indigenous people. Because mm. in a tribe, mm. and I spend a lot of time with the Yawanawa tribe in Brazil, mm. That people live just like in a small village with like 100 people, mm -hmm. 80 people, 120 mm -hmm. people. And there are several villages of the Yaunoa and like seven villages over one river. And these people are very connected. And once they go into ceremony, once they use the sacred medicine, they um, live in the tribe all the time. Mm -hmm. So the ceremony that happens in the ceremony, let's say like that, where you take those medicines and connect with the force of those medicines, mm. and the bigger ceremony that's happening, mm. which I call daily life, mm. it's so connected, because mm. those people are together all the time. Mm. So they talk about it, they process it together, they go back into ceremony, they see what it does, they, okay, take a bit of a break, go deeper into it, like there's guidance from the elders in mm. that way. 
Mm-hmm. And for us in the Western world, that container is not happening at all. No. We live in big cities, you know, mm-hmm. with millions of people sometimes, or even in smaller villages. But even if people go into this very transformational experience, and not just with plant medicine, but even with like yoga or meditation or transformational breath or any of those transformational practices, it's many times that people miss the community to really talk about it, mm. to share about it, to ask questions about it, to really own that experience. You know, some people hold back in sharing it with their colleagues, with their family, with their friends, because that space is not naturally there like it is in the tribe. Mm. So seeing that, learning that, seeing that further myself and how my friends reacted to that and my colleagues reacted to that and how my family reacted to that and navigating that, I was looking for a way. How can we use these beautiful medicines in a container that's really held, that's manageable for people in the Western life uh, with all the responsibilities that comes with life, the work, careers, relationships. The householder life. The householder life in the Western Mm -hmm. world, exactly. Mm -hmm. And over the last years, I was just like looking for a way to do that. And what I learned, microdosing Mm. is such a beautiful way to do that, to Mm. connect with these plants in a very gentle way. Because microdosing means to take a tiny dose, a microdose of a substance, Mm. without feeling any of its direct effects. Mm. But on the longer term, then the benefits of these medicines come in. Mm. And while you take that, over that long term, being in your daily life with all the responsibilities that come with that, I think that's a beautiful way to connect with these medicines. So mm. that was the kind of the, yeah, the search of finding a responsible way to yeah, share these very powerful medicines you know, mm. with, with people in the Western world. I see. So if you have to, we're going to more microdosing in a moment, but if you can articulate what's your grander vision or purpose to do the work that you do, how would you articulate it today? I hope that is to bring closer people, closer to the destiny. Mm. And not just people, but also be part of this shift that's happening in humanity, which I think is calling in this new earth, this new time, this new era. this new age that so many people speak about or this new age movement and even like decades ago that was said in a bit of a condensing way or these new age people, the hippies but those are the people that brought these practices like yoga, like meditations like the medicines into the western world like Mm. the 60s, the 70s the flower power movement all those people were part of really pioneering this path Mm. and what we've seen in this last decade I think is that all these modalities have become much more mainstream right Yoga is so present in our culture. Mm. Half a century ago, that was completely different. Mm. Meditation is so present in the Western world. Half a century was completely different. Mm. Now the sacred medicines are coming out. Half a century ago, nobody would have heard about ayahuasca or mm. rapé or any of those medicines. Mm. Now they're becoming much more mainstream. That mm. movement is happening. You see you know, all the rules, legalizations that are changing around plant medicines, psilocybin. You know, it's, it's a beautiful movement to watch. But I think that also comes with a huge responsibility mm. of people that bring these people, uh, bring these medicines, these modalities to the Western world to really find a way and to fine-tune that way to make them available in this Western society in a way that's responsible, that fits in the world that we live in. So in a bigger sense, it's being part of calling in this, this new earth. 
the movement that's happening. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's such a yearning, there's a hunger for something like this in the Western world specifically? Ah, I think there are many ways to answer that question, but on a deeper level, like I think more and more people start to see and feel and notice. And the, our environment is showing that the way we're living now mm. is not sustainable. Mm. If you continue in this way, and you know, whatever way you look at that, but robbing the resources of the planet, mm. you know, living in a world uh, where people are not connecting with each other anymore. Sometimes we live in buildings of hundreds of people, mm. and a person dies, and we find out weeks later mm. that somebody has died, nobody has missed this person. Mm. There's such disconnection happening yeah, in this time, and people are yearning for for that connection, mm. yearning to be understood, yearning to be seen, mm. yearning to be able to fully live their dreams and visions. Because our society have been telling us, or part of our society, that our dreams and our visions are not true, that are not real, and that we have to fit in a certain system, a certain belief system. Mm. And I think people are slowly feeling that their dreams and visions are true. Mm. And that, that is a possibility that's mm. there, even in this life, to, to manifest and for us to call that in. But that comes to starting a, a new level of personal leadership, mm. where we start not to just look at governments or big companies or big organizations to make the shift, but for us as people mm. to take the power back. Mm. In, in a very positive way, not mm -hmm. throwing away all the systems, not like rebelling against them or destroying them, but calling a new way in our own lives mm. by taking different choices. Mm. And I think that calling, that transformation is happening inside more and more people. So these plans, these transformational um, modalities are coming out to help with mm. that transformation. And I think that's the big reason why so many people feel called to these, these type of practices, because mm. we know that the world that's much more beautiful and much more connected than the world that we live in now in Western society is possible. Mm. Yeah, my, my personal journey has been that what I was taught in our society is, hey, you, when you achieve success, quote unquote, whatever that means for you, whether it be money or uh, accolades or um, prestige, then you be happy then you made it. But the reality is that, um, at least from my personal um, journey, point of view, is that those things are beautiful, but is insufficient. There's still that deep yearning for connection to be seen. And from a sovereign space, how do I create a life that I love and not the life that I think I should have, right? External versus internal. And these medicines, meditation, practices, yoga, are beautiful ways to, for you to find what truly makes you come alive, right? If you just look at the history of, of humanity, that step is, I think, a very natural step that's happening. Because, mm. for example, my grandparents in Europe, I come from Holland, the Netherlands, Mm. They grew up in a type of war. My grandmother, uh, she grew up in the time of war. She was part of bombings, and she was part of poverty, and she was part of fear. 
and the Second World War happening there had a big impact in, the, in her life mm. and the life of all that generation of our grandparents. Mm. So for them, she was like 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, you know, in the last years of the war. So she came into life after the war in 1945, mm. not so long ago, right. that it was about that, you know, like getting out of poverty, getting out of hunger, getting out of fear, getting out of destruction. So building up a good career, having a good job, making sure that your family is fed, making sure that your family has housing, mm. you know, building that secure system around, that, that was a big part of their life, because the time they came from. Mm. So the generation of our parents grew up in that mindset. Mm. And that was a generation that has been such a big part of like creating the, the society that we're in now, exactly what you say, like, making money, being successful, having a good career, having a good house. Having a lot of stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing, you know, that that happened because that was so necessary in, in our evolution as mm -hmm. a species. Mm -hmm. And I think now we're slowly coming to the point that we start to see when just a few people start to do that, kind of imbalance start to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think now it's good to go back to a more balanced society where we still stand for abundance fully in mm -hmm. all levels, but not just abundance to keep from a place of fear, but also from abundance to share mm. from a place of trust and knowing um, that there's enough for all of us. Mm. So that segues nicely to some of the benefits that you've either experienced personally or you've witnessed with all your clients. What are some of the can you just call out some of the major benefits of microdosing, uh, especially the ayahuasca vine microdosing? Yeah, so the ayahuasca vine, the indigenous people tell us that's the grandmother of all plants, all flowers, all trees. I also call it abuela ayahuasca, grandmother ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. And those indigenous people have such a connection with nature. So actually mm -hmm. with the plants, with the animals, with the earth, with the sky, with the sun, with each other. Mm -hmm. That connection is so much more there in those cultures than in our Western world. That for them to connect with this grandmother energy is a really loving energy, a caring energy, a really wise energy. Like a grandmother holding her grandchildren and whispering in their ears. And also sometimes being really a bit more stern. Okay, no, you have to go, why don't you go this direction? But mm. like as a grandparents are so good in guiding grandchildren, or maybe much more than parents are. Mm. So I think this plant, the ayahuasca vine, that's the grandmother energy, comes in in this time in a really beautiful way, but also powerful way, mm. you not know, to, to show us these new pathways that are slowly opening. So what I've seen with that energy coming in and, and people connecting with that energy in a very gentle way, day-to-day -day in microdosing mm. has been really people relaxing, coming to a much more state of, of love, of trust, of abundance, and going away of a space that's much more fear, anxiety, um, disconnection. Because mm. that general state of being, you know, that's maybe our, our foundation of who mm. we are, mm. once we act from a state of fear, all our relationships are going to be influenced. Mm. All our work is going to be influenced. Every single decision that you make is going to be influenced by that energy. Mm. So when you shift that state of being to trust, love, abundance, mm. stepping into your power, personal power, and I mean power in the positive sense of the words, not like in, in a dominating sense of the words. Not force. Not force, exactly. Mm -hmm. 
really stepping into that and really becoming you, mm. then you take complete different decisions. Mm. You are able to, and that will dribble into all your relationships, in your work, in, in your family, in your friendships, as your, your general well-being. So that's more like a general shift mm. that I've seen in people. Mm. And that can result in, in, in many ways for mm. every person that's, that's completely different. So from your personal point of view, as well as witnessing your clients, <clears throat> going through that journey from a very protective, um, almost a survival, fear-based way of living, which is okay, you know, we need that for survival, right? Exactly. To a place of openness, to embracing the collective whole, to love. Can you walk us through a little bit of what are some of the hmm, internal belief shift that needed to happen to do that? Mm. Let me see what's... Maybe I can speak a bit of my own journey. Sure, yeah. Because once I started connecting with these medicines and I truly felt the benefit of them, I felt the shift inside of me, I felt a different calling to start to share different things in my life. Mm. That came with a lot of many voices in my environment mm. I was in a different relationship then um, different colleagues and they started to question mm. you know, my steps my path mm. what are you doing you're, you're playing in these orchestras you have worked for them for like you know maybe decades to get to that practicing many hours you know, went to school got your master in music yeah, this was your goal now you're, you're there mm. you're, you're there where you always wanted to be and now you want to go somewhere else like what are you doing? Like, why don't you just stop this and just continue? You know what's happening, mm. and that kind of feeling of security, mm. you know, that we built around us, the safety net that that comes from the place of survival, right. which is a very important uh, mechanism that we have inside of us. Mm. Um, I started to see that security is an illusion, mm. and that step more into trust that if I really follow my past, my calling, uh, what some people would call my dharma or mm. my destiny, mm. I will be taken care of mm. and things are going to come in my life to support that mm. and to feel that trust. And that was the way that I was able to stop working as a classical musician, mm. let go of my salary, Mm. My, my life, my relationship and step into a completely new chapter in my life where I had no clue what was going to happen and how that will unfold mm. but in complete trust that that was the only right thing that I could do you make it sound easy right <clears throat> whereas as you said the, the sentence was I was in survival mode competing with to be in this world class musician to letting go, to just trust. It's easy to articulate, but that in itself is challenging. And why I want to focus on this point specifically is the world's changing really fast. Technology disrupting different industry, um, geopolitical situations, the market conditions, everything. As, uh, as you said, in my mind, it's easier to be in a monastery. It's a simple life. You chop wood, you carry water, you do your meditation, that's that. But as householders, we have different challenges. We do live in this realm. Money is part of the equation. 
when you buy food, pay rent, all these things. Um, to walk us a little, a little bit deeper of how did you uh, foster that courage, listening to that inner voice, and and trust, because can't speak for you, but speak for myself. That process in itself is challenging because essentially the metaphor, the, the transformation process. I needed to let go of these old programming and embrace the new belief that I have. So walk us a little bit deeper on how did you navigate that water and in service of whoever is listening to this <clears throat> as a path to reinvent themselves. Because as the macro environment changed very rapidly, people must, need to, will have to almost um, to reinvent self, reinvent themselves over and over, right? So walk us a little bit more detail, please. Play by play if you can. Yeah, I mean, you're so right. Um, that process can be really challenging. Mm-hmm. And for myself, those, let's say, two years between my first ceremonies plus opening the center in Peru were a very challenging time. We had moments where I felt really lost, really disconnected, really questioning my whole shift that was happening, questioning all the modalities I was uh, connecting to, um, really being in places where I felt, let's say, depressed or anxiety or insecurity, or mm. I felt judgment of people around me and I felt my own judgment. It was a very challenging time. So the question like how to go through that time gracefully is, is, is a very important question. Mm. So what I learned is trust comes basically with a place of feeling connected. Trust and then what? Comes from a place mm. of feeling connected. Mm. And fear comes from a place of feeling disconnected. Mm. So what was for me a huge part of my journey is that... In connected the, to what? Being connected to, let's say, that energy that's all around us all the time. Mm-hmm. There's this bigger field. But some people call that spiritual energy. Some people might call that God or great spirit or, you know, even the scientific world. You know, if you look at how the small, tiny particles, atoms, electrons, neurons... There's so much space mm. between them. From 99.999, I don't know how many nines, it's empty space. That's and right. Still, we see this table yeah. as dense. Yeah. Then we don't see that open space in here. That space that's in between that, mm. that's, that's a certain force. And that's why all mystics, all religions, all spiritual traditions speaking of that force. Mm. That force is your essence. That force is my essence. That force is the essence of all that is. And to be connected with that, mm. that's a key. Mm. And however you name that force, um, is is up to a person. You know, if you if you believe in a higher force in, uh, and are part of a religion or a spiritual tradition, then that is a force to connect with. Mm. If you're an atheist, then just life is that force. You know, because there's something that's birthing us, and you know, well, that's happening. That's greater than us. So be connected with that. Mm. And that comes on a smaller level to being connected to people. Mm. Being connected to people that share your belief system, that share your values, that share your way of living. To be in a community of Mm. people that support you. To be connected even to one person that understands what you're talking about. Mm. So finding connection is a big part of that. And what was so instrumental in my own journey 
was at the same time I started that journey with the with these sacred medicines. I did my Kundalini Yoga teacher training. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Mm. And that year of training with going slowly in a daily spiritual practice, mm. doing yoga every day, doing some meditation every day. And the journey was a wobbly journey. It was I entered <laughs> something with full commitment. And like, you know, eight days, it was like doing yoga two hours a day. And then I didn't do any yoga for like two weeks. And right. I was going up and down and back and forth. And but slowly going into those practices mm. and really using my body in yoga to move those energies inside of me, strengthening my body in that way. Because mm. those practices are there to connect. Mm. Now, all those practices are about connection. And for me, building a daily spiritual practice mm. has been the single biggest gift in my life that I could have given myself to go mm. through that transformation. Because mm. if I would have not done that, I don't think I would have found what you call courage mm. to to make those steps and mm. to make those decisions mm. and to make those shifts. And then even when I started, I started something very new uh, without a lot of experience to go through that you know, those beginning steps. And I still feel I'm very much in the beginning of, of this journey. Mm -hmm. Those practices helped me tremendously. Mm. And I think connecting, you know, with these very powerful plants these very powerful medicines. I've seen it with so many people. They have these huge transformational moments in ceremony mm. and then they come out and in a few weeks they lose that connection mm. and then they go back. And sometimes when you go back, you're on a worse state than you were before because you have seen That's the possibility right. of what is happening. You've experienced truth. Exactly. Or you're actually more specifically, not the absolute truth per se, but your personal truth. You've, you've witnessed who you are and your essence. And then awareness comes in mm -hmm. that you're not living your truth. Mm. And awareness of not living your truth mm. is much more difficult mm. than having, not having that awareness at all. Mm. So people come back sometimes in a more challenging position. Mm. And for me, those practices like meditation, like yoga, qigong, tai chi, or you know, for some people that might be surfing, hiking, mm. spending time in nature, you know, whatever practice where you work, where you use your body, connecting with that spiritual force, that I think is a massive key mm. to, um, yeah, to feel that connection and to mm. go into that trust. Mm. Because if you look at indigenous people, like our nervous system is such an important part of our body. Now, internally, you know, nervous system is like the, the gateway, the highway of information between your brain and the muscles. Now, if you move, that all goes through the nervous system, those, those impulses. But also that connection with that bigger field, that's your nervous system. Mm. Your nervous system is your antenna mm. to connect with those forces. And if you live in the forest all the time, like the indigenous people, mm. that nervous system is so strong. You know, they, they hunt, they fish, they build houses from cutting trees and felling them and, you know, mm. really working hard, using their body in nature mm. all the time. Mm. Their nervous system is super strong. Mm. We live in the Western world. You know, where we're not connected to nature, where we might take foods that are not uh, completely without toxins, mm -hmm. where we don't have those practices. So our nervous system is much more weak. Mm. So we are naturally less connected. So to go into these practices for us, where some people are an amazing way mm. to use these tools mm. to feel more of that connection. Mm. So what are some of your practices right now, today, as a way to cultivate that? Antenna, as you said. 
every morning I do my yoga, Kundalini yoga and, and the meditation. Mm. And when I do that, I feel more connection. Mm. But the difficult thing is, even when I do, don't do it for like four, five, six, seven days, massive shift. Yeah, yeah, sure. So it's, it's a big uh, yeah, learning because the impulse of us human beings when we feel good and feel great, we stop those practices and we go back. Right. I got it. I don't need to do these things anymore. Um, is, okay, so let's go a little bit more tactical here. Is there a specific time? Is there a specific kind of meditation that you use? I think that is so different for every person. Sure. And there's so many different spiritual practices around. And mm-hmm. I think that the reason for that is because there's so many different human beings. Mm-hmm. So I think the key is really finding something that you resonate with, mm-hmm. finding something that you enjoy. Because mm-hmm. finding joy in the practice ah. is such a key. So joy is a indicator that this is the right path. I should you, continue to pull this thread. Huge indicator. And I, for example, when I started to connect with yoga, I was living in Berlin at that time. Mm. I did yoga. Yeah, hey, you've been all over the place. Mm. <laughs> nice. So I, I traveled for like seven, eight years every summer to the east, like India, Nepal, mm. Tibet, mm. Laos, Cambodia, Thailand. And in those countries, I connected with different modalities. And one summer in Thailand, I did the juice fast and did yoga for the very first time. Mm. An American guy was living in that, in that center, juice uh, fast center. And I did my very first yoga classes. And he luckily knew, I don't know, six, seven, eight different types of yoga very well. Mm. And he showed all of them to me in that week. Wow. And I went back to Berlin and he said, you know, just, mm. just go. Find different teachers, go to different schools and see what you connect with. Mm. And he explained me a few yogas. And in that time I connected with like Ashtanga yoga. Because mm. he, he his main practice was Ashtanga. So that's what I went to in, in Berlin. But then I learned I'm quite tall. Yes, I'm not you are very tall. I'm not very flexible. Mm. At the time, I couldn't even reach my toes with my, with my fingers. I would bend down and not bend my knees. You know, I could maybe reach my knees. Mm-hmm. It was very stiff. Mm. So Ashtanga Yoga is very much working with your body. So I start to feel a little bit of like comparison and even like shame. Like, oh, I'm, I'm way less flexible than all the people around me in the class. Mm. So it didn't give me so much joy. Mm. And then when it's Kundalini Yoga for the first time, after the first class, I was like, wow, this is, this is my yoga. Mm. And that indication of joy I felt was for me like a, a key. And I just, I've stick to that practice since. I haven't gone, I think, to a single different yoga class in the last six, seven years because I know Kundalini Yoga is my practice. Wow, beautiful. Mm. The thing for people that are in the beginning of the journey, find your practice. Mm-hmm. And the same at the time of the day. For me, it works what I learned over the years to do it first thing in the morning. Because once I go into my life, many things happen, many, many things come, conversations, people, work, relationships, family, phone calls, emails, computer, phone, life just happens. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I go to bed in the evening and like, I forget it. And the next morning I wake up and I'm like, oops. Yeah. I forgot. Yeah. So I just learned first thing in the morning otherwise I don't do it yeah. but I know people they love doing before they go to sleep mm. and then they close their day in that way they sleep well some people like to do it in the afternoon break or when they come home 5 o'clock mm. so the time of the day I don't think is so important mm. and people say it's, it's best to do it early morning because then also like just the world is much more quiet 
Mm-hmm. Those, those spiritual energies are much more easy to feel. Mm-hmm. I believe that's that's true. But for us householders to really meditate every morning at four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning, very difficult. You did the sadhana thing. I did a while the sadhana. Yeah, but it's beautiful, right? At four a.m. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. But I learned like playing a concert and coming home at like eleven thirty in the evening, and mm-hmm. then waking up at four o'clock, being on my yoga mat. Just that didn't work for me because mm-hmm. then I would go to the rehearsal at nine thirty. I would be exhausted. Yeah, and that that was not serving me. I was mm-hmm. not serving anybody. Mm-hmm. I was not serving the orchestra because I was not concentrated. I was sleepy. Mm-hmm. So I found my own way, my own rhythm. Mm-hmm. And I think in this Western time, that's really beautiful to fine tune those practices to what works for you. Yeah, because what you said in the beginning to do sadhana at four a.m. as a as a monk living in a monastery. That's amazing, mm-hmm. but as a householder, mm. for some people it might be easy, mm-hmm. and for some people, you know, they'd like to sleep uh, in because their work takes them to late in the evening, late in the night. That right. might not be a possibility. It's not practical, <clears throat> and and I, I love that you emphasize on the point of saying, "Do what works for you," versus, "Oh, this is the the doctrine." Right, the four a.m., the the five a.m., or the you know the vipassana, one the two hours per day. I don't have two hours a day as a householder <laughs> to to do that. Um, it's not well. Maybe I should phrase it in a different way. It's impractical for for, yeah. for for me to live my householder life. And that's sometimes a pity because when those teachings come out so strong, and these teachings are all true. Mm-hmm. You know, for vipassana, I've done vipassana several times, ten day retreats. I love vipassana. Yeah, it's awesome. It's amazing. And but to do two times an hour a day of meditation, I agree with you. And in, in my life, especially how it was in Amsterdam, that was not a possibility. And do I believe those teachings that if you really want to dive in that practice, it only works if you do two hours a day? Mm. I think that's true. But at the same time, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when these like doctrines are pushed uh, strongly, people feel guilt. Yes, I want to meditate, but if I don't meditate two times an hour a day, then I'm not welcome. So what's this? Mm-hmm. And it brings shame, it brings blame, it brings fear, anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly what we was want to go away from. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, finding the right balance between honoring a practice really finding the practice that resonates for you, where you feel joy, where you feel the benefits coming, mm. and also honoring the practices as they are, mm. and really going to the roots of them and learning them. Mm. That balance is, I think, yeah, one of the beautiful challenges of this time mm. of us people in the Western world to have the great gift of living in a time where all these practices are coming into the Western world. Mm. Because a century ago, that was not possible. Yeah. Yeah, so we are the pioneers of bringing those practices in this busy Western world. Yeah, I think it's. Um, let's see where we can go from here. So I can't speak for you. I speak for myself. I don't think that I ever feel. Ooh, I'm looking forward to do a difficult task, whether it be yoga or meditation, because right away I experience boredom. Right, right away, I experience discontent. But I also am very much aware my internal state. Oh, the payoff of this difficult task—yoga, meditation, whatever it may be, journaling—is uh, clarity, is inner stillness, is 
that quiet sense of joy as you, that you mentioned earlier. So then for me, I, like you, if I, I choose to do my practices first thing in the morning because that's when my willpower is the strongest versus for the people that wait until the last thing they do before they go to sleep. I mean, I admire that, but that's not me because by that time I just want to go to sleep and just finish the day versus overcoming this internal hurdle of, uh, of doing something that I know would take work. Would you, what would you say to that? Similar or different? Mm, uh, yeah, I see a lot of similarities in my own journey because I also sometimes don't necessarily enjoy doing yoga meditation in the morning, especially if I have a lot of things to do that day and I know many tasks that are waiting for me. Mm -hmm. So I, sometimes I would love nothing more than just to get going on them, mm -hmm. maybe, you know, going on my computer and doing tasks or going to meetings or, you know, whatever is there. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I know that resistance very much. Mm -hmm. But then when I've done the practice and I come out with a much more feeling of being centered, calmness, joy, relaxedness, much more concentrated, much mm -hmm. more centered, mm -hmm. that's the joy I feel in mm -hmm. going to that day. Right. So what I learned, the joy of the, having a daily spiritual practice on the longer term yeah. is there, but sometimes in the practice I'm like, oh man, really again? All right. And I think that's something that comes, is very connected to our Western society because we have learned so much, things have to be quick, mm. results have to be now, and, mm. you know, things have to happen on this moment, and you now with the whole social media and the whole you know, technical realm that's coming more and more into our lives, mm. that instant gratification right. is something that we get so used to. Right. And with these practices, all spiritual practice, is not so much the instant gratification, mm. it's more the long-term gratification, the mm. long-term joy that mm. comes from that. Mm, I love that. Yeah, spirituality does not happen in this moment. It's a journey. Right. <clears throat> well, there's a lot of direction we can go from there. But let me bring back to microdosing real quick. There's certain stigma is kind of a strong word, but I'll use that word because that's the best way I can articulate it. <clears throat> Some people feel like plant medicine. I don't want to be dependent on something to get me to a particular state, right? And I grapple with that myself in the beginning of it. And I realize that for me, it's more, if I actually reframe the concept of taking uh, microdosing to say, taking vitamins. I drink coffee to get me to a certain state, to be more focused, to you know, get me going. I take vitamins as a way to prime my brain, my body for the environment that that's conducive for me, right? So did you have to navigate that to educate, make your clients more aware of, hey, this is not something to shy away from? Actually, I'm just curious, like if you can navigate, uh, share a little bit about your story of sharing, even for yourself internally. How do you reframe the idea of taking this ayahuasca vine as a way to prime for your best self to show up. Yeah, that's a very, very beautiful point you bring up there. And this is what I see with many people that's happening, you know, that are connecting with these plant medicines. 
some people think I go to a ceremony of ayahuasca, for example, um, will change my life completely. Mm -hmm. I will come out transformed and healed, <laughs> and you know, I'm, I'm a different person after the ceremony. Right. And in one la layer, that can be true. Right. But at the same time, the indigenous people tell us that these plants are plant teachers, mm -hmm. plants that teach us something. Mm -hmm. And like a teacher in a classroom, you know, a teacher can point the way, can show you where to go, can give you a bigger picture of what's possible, mm. you know, what's, what's out there. Mm. But a teacher will not take the steps for you. Right. A teacher will not shift things inside of you. They can't. They can't. Only you can. Exactly. Yeah. So with microdosing the same, connecting with such a strong plant teacher, let's say ayahuasca, by taking it, you know, a tiny amount each day, mm. will that shift your state of being? Maybe. For most people it does. But then if you don't take different actions, if you don't speak different words, if you don't show up in your relationship in a different way, mm. you'll still be the same person. So if you start to see that, it's actually very empowering. Because mm. to say these medicines are going to do the work for me, I just lay back, be on the sofa, watch TV all day, and just going to wait for the shift to happen. Right. That's very disempowering. <laughs> and I don't think these plant medicines or any of these spiritual practices come into our life mm. to, to do that, to disempower us. Mm. They come to empower us. So if you connect with these plants and your state of being slowly starts to shift, mm -hmm. then it's up to you to make those changes. So the way I see microdosing is not, let's say, the fuel to bring you in that state that you can maybe call the state of flow, mm. you know, where synchronicities happen, where you just meet people, where things feel really um, in alignment, you know, you feel in a good space. Let's say that's the state of flow. Mm. Microdosing is not the fuel to keep you in that movement. Mm. Microdosing, as I see it, is like the kickstarter mm. to get you on that journey, mm. but then a daily spiritual practice maybe be meditation or mm. yoga or tai chi or whatever, that's the fuel to keep you going. I like that. So I see microdosing just as kickstarting people into the next chapter of their lives, mm. but then also taking them out of that microdosing again, so you're not dependent on mm. that substance for the rest of your life, mm -hmm. but, and then to teach them what it is to have a daily spiritual practice, to guide them through that process that I myself had of like, okay, doing 10 days of yoga, two hours a day, and then losing it for a month. Right. How can you build a daily spiritual practice slowly, easy, so you can make it a habit? Mm -hmm. It becomes part of the new you. Mm -hmm. And then this daily spiritual practice, that's the fuel to keep that journey going. Mm -hmm. That's how I see the use of these uh, very powerful plant medicines. I like that. Thank you. Yeah, you're right. Um, it's very... I don't want to put... Maybe I was going to use the word Western, but really it's not. It's a human, so I would say modern. Modern way of thinking that if I do this, causal, right, then automatically I don't need to think, I don't need to make a choice. But the reality, at least for my personal journey, is that you're still the driver of your, the, this vehicle. You still need to, moment by moment, choose... Um, what's workable, what's best for you, right? Um, let's see. What can we go from here? There's, a, there's some question that I do want to ask. Let me actually refer to it real quick. Ah. So you mentioned 
you have a music background, and part of your journey is to empower people to shift the belief system, the operating system that's inside their brain when they the lens that they look at life, this reality. So, how have you used your musical training as a way to guide that、uh, journey from belief, disempowering belief, to empowering belief for yourself as well as for your clients? I mean, music is such、um, an amazing teacher、mm-hmm. in so many ways. I love music. Like music as a consumer, or music as an active playing. Music in the bigger sense of the word,、mm. because if you look at music,、mm. um, music can show so many things, and especially in classical music, what's the big part of of a big symphony orchestra? You know, that's the world I was in for many years.、Mm-hmm. It's harmony,、mm. you know, because when people sp- play different tones at the same moment, you get a chord,、mm. and when those chords are built up in a certain way, that are in in line with the laws of nature. As you know, for example, Pythagoras put that so amazingly in the system.、Um, then harmony can happen.、Mm-hmm. And if you have a chord that's fully in harmony, and a whole symphony orchestra plays in harmony, that can be so touching. A、mm-hmm. heart can start to really open, and like, oh wow, this is so beautiful.、Mm-hmm. And that's so inspiring of music. So if you take that into daily lives, if people interact with each other,、mm-hmm. and you see the actions and the words of people as Tones that you play in a、mm. symphony orchestra are those tones going to create harmony, or are those tones going to create disharmony?、Mm. Because when there's friction between people, it's not in harmony. And when you are able to shift the vibration where you sing with your accents, your words, and create harmony, I think that's that's beautiful. And music shows us that so. So amazingly, if you play guitar and you put your fingers on on the frets on different Uh, strings, in a certain way, and you strum those strings, you can get a beautiful chord. But if you put them on different frets, it can be horrible. We're like, oh wow, I don't want to hear this because it's just you know, it's not harmony. It doesn't sound well. So in that way, music to bring people into harmony,、mm. I think that's、uh, yeah, the beautiful thing to always look for. So do you use music as part of your training or rituals to empower your clients to shift? From this empowering belief to empowering belief in the moments, notice. I think music is such an amazing tool for that. So、mm-hmm. yeah, in, in in retreats that we we do,、mm-hmm. music is a big part of that.、Mm-hmm. And if you look at like、um, many movements, no, may that be churches, you know, that use music in their worship.、Mm-hmm. Uh, like a few. A couple of years ago, I went to a church that my sister、uh, visits,、mm. and it was a church that I never visited.、Uh, a certain lineage of Christianity, and they were singing music in in their mass or in their place of worship.、Mm. And I entered that space and just started to cry.、Mm. I just felt how much、um, energy was there and how much it was touching people. And I saw the transformation it had on my sister, and I saw the transformation it had on all the people there. I was like, "How beautiful!"、Mm. And even if you look to, let's say, the Second World War,、mm. you know, Adolf Hitler, he used music in also in a powerful way to get people in certain states、mm. to do some things that they did, you know. So music is an incredible force. If you go to a, 
a pop concert, you know, of, of, I don't know, Lady Gaga and people that really connect with that type of music. I think people that are in such a space with tens of thousands of people mm. really being in that space of the music and dancing and really almost going in a trance. Mm. It's amazing what music can bring and how it can shift our states. So I think music is, is an incredible power vehicle to use in, in transformation. Do you um, have a specific type of music that you listen to when you are in a funk during the day, during the day-to-day or, or do you have any ritualistic so for example, I'll share this about myself so that way it's not all on you I love listening to cinematic music about superheroes when I wake up because right away, boom I'm a superhero waking up, getting ready for the rest of my day. So that's very, very energizing, very empowering for me. So do you have anything like that? Um, say when you encounter some setback, you know, doing your day-to-day, then boom, put you right back to a resourceful, empowering state. Anything like that? Yeah, that's so beautiful to use music in that way. And um, once I experience that, maybe like, yeah, a year and a half ago when the last new Star Wars movie came out mm. and I went to see it in the very few days with a couple of good friends and the moment that tune started of the movie like the whole cinema was just like yeah shouting you know like <laughs> that's a, a piece of music that's such a history mm. that brings people right back to that place mm. that was so amazing to feel that so yeah I use music in that, that way as well if I feel sad or a bit down I, I put sometimes music to really calm me Mm. And one artist or a group of artists I'm really connected with the last days is uh, Sacred Earth. Mm. It's a couple from Australia. Okay. A woman that sings and um, I'm not sure if it's a husband or a man that plays flute. And mm. she also plays like keyboards. And it's so relaxing, calm music and her voice is almost like an angel singing. Mm. That music calms me so much. And yeah, for example, when I... Uh, was in the classical music world mm. I was going to auditions right. I, and I was feeling a bit of anxiety and stress and at the same time I needed to go on that stage and give all that I had to you know, to win that audition and to get that position in the orchestra I would listen to music of Wagner mm. a big orchestra with a starting very soft Tannhauser overture that was that music started very soft and the whole orchestra to build all this majestic bombastic music that went to the state of like feeling victory you know yeah yeah that was my music to go into that so yeah I've used music in, in, in many ways uh, in many moments of my life to, yeah. to do that I love that yeah do you have a preference because you do whole ceremonies as well outside of the states do you have a preference to uh, live musician versus recorded music um, the reason I asked that question is because when I hear people saying oh yeah I just play the maps uh, playlist from ceremony music, it's scientifically proven, da, da, da. and in my mind, it's like that's a good place to start. But uh, the, the pitfall of a fixed playlist is you don't; it's not interactive. It you the facilitator doesn't actually read into the energy of the room and play the appropriate music for the room. So I'm curious to hear your perspective as a professional musician, former, I don't know if you still play music, and also as a ceremonialist. What's your point of view on that? 
live musician or recording music or a little bit of both or how do you navigate that? I mean, I think live music is something absolutely unique. When it's like a facilitator leading a ceremony that sings and that plays music and is fully tapped into the room and the energies of what's happening there and plays music on that energy or directs energy with music, that's something magical. That's where magic starts to happen, when full transmission can start to happen. Mm. Because music is such a transmission. You know, people that even go to like rave concerts, they feel that transmission, they almost get into that kind of trance state. Live music can bring that. And a good DJ, no, that's what a good DJ does. Feel the room, feel the people. Even on a wedding, just playing dance music as a DJ, no, a good DJ, listens to the room, sees the room, and plays those songs that, that fits to that crowd of people. So that fine-tuning with people, you know, good musicians, may they be a DJ, a, a singer, an instrumentalist, a sound healer, or anything, you know, that's such a, a key uh, part of, of leading a ceremony, mm. or leading any type of ceremony, I think. So live music in that sense is incomparable mm. with any playlist. At the same time, we live in this time where we have now access to massive amount of music, you know, to different subscriptions uh, that are so readily available to the internet in, in this time, which is such a gift. And what I learned coming back from the ceremonies in Peru, I, as I said, I thought it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. But then five months later, on social media, somebody posted a video of a guy um, from Venezuela that I had sat next to into uh, my ceremony that played uh, and that video was about a song of him him singing a song that he had sung in a very deep moment in my ceremony and when I listened back to that song it brought me back to that experience almost immediately mm. and I, I, with tears were coming like oh wow took a deep breath and I was like I was almost back in that ceremony by just mm. listening to that music mm. so in that sense having a playlist with music that you have experienced and that's transformational moments or concerts that you really resonate with or artists that you really like it's such an amazing way to bring you back to those kind of states mm. so they both can be used in their own ways I don't think one is better than the other mm. just different tools different tools mm. and yeah so different tools different moments to use them mm. thank you for that you had plenty of experience with plant medicine I'm assuming yes okay yeah. For the listeners that, are not, that, that can't see this, um, Dennis just nodded his head. So um, what are some of the criteria that you use, that you've experienced as a way to discern who are, I use more general, gen, generalized terms, um, great space holders, right? The ability to read the room and give what the, the space needs, um, Maybe a, a shorter way to uh, ask that question would be, what are some of the ways that you can recommend people who are listening to this to evaluate their facilitator, their pages, or whoever? Yeah, very good question. Um, I always like to go back to the tradition where a certain medicine comes from. Mm. Let's talk about ayahuasca. Sure. Ayahuasca comes from the indigenous people of the Amazon. Mm -hmm. There are various tribes that have been working with ayahuasca for thousands and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And that has happened through many different times. Not times of great wars, times of starvation, 
times of where the missionaries came in and forbade the indigenous people to use their medicines, speak the language, do their prayers, tell their stories, only be able to speak Portuguese or Spanish. Um, times of where the rubber tappers came in and enslaved indigenous people, you know, to work for the rubber tapper plantations. And you now, too many times these medicines have survived. So they stood the test of time gloriously. And the test of time is maybe the most difficult test to stand. Mm -hmm. So it's good to go back to those traditions and to see like what have those people learned over all that period of time, what it is to come into the place to hold a ceremony. And so I, I went to an indigenous tribe, I met in an amazing way, so grateful for that meeting, and was blessed to spend t until now a year and a half now with the Yawanwa, mm. was allowed to enter their study. So I asked them, like, what does it take for somebody to lead a ceremony? You know, how can you get into the place to become a page, not mm. to become a shaman? Mm. And what I learned over the years is that they have very set path. So there is actually a set path? Yeah, very much so. Okay. And the path for the indigenous people is the Edas. Mm. And the Edas are... No extended periods of time where you sometimes work with like master plans or you know with other um, modalities, but they all happen in isolation in the jungle mm. where you go away from society, just connecting with nature. Normally, it takes complete long periods of celibacy. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes even not drinking water, very not limited, drinking water, not drinking pure really? water, wow. and drinking other liquids. Yeah. What other liquid? Like Kaisuma, the juice of the yucca huh. that's chewed by women. Oh, that's right, yes. And yeah. um, for example, not eating any sweets, mm -hmm. just like corn or green bananas. Um, so to take away all, let's say, the um, desires of the body, mm -hmm. sweets and sexuality mm -hmm. is uh, two very strong desires, mm -hmm. to take that away and then to go to deep processes of transformation yourself mm -hmm. to really connect with those forces to face them and to learn how to tame them. Mm. Because they told me like, leading a ceremony, you're going to face three major forces to work with. Mm. Power, mm. sexuality, mm. and now money. Mm. And once you learn to work with them in a responsible way, then you're more ready to lead a ceremony. Mm. When those forces are still having free reign inside of you, then you might act from a different space and then you might hold a ceremony with different intentions than to provide transformation or healing for people. Mm. So they came up with these periods and the tradition of the Yawanawa, mm. they, it's very specific. They really beautiful to see how things moved because through the missionaries coming in, through the rubber tappers coming in in the last century or last century and a half, they almost lost their complete tradition. Mm. And it happens in many tribes. Many tribes in this time in the Amazon have no connection anymore with that tradition. Mm. They don't know the songs anymore. They don't know how to use the medicines. They don't know their stories. They don't know their language. No, they completely went in speaking Portuguese, going into the Catholic Church, speaking Spanish, and leaving their tradition mm. over a few generations. Mm. The Yawanawa in the year 2000 had almost always, almost completely lost their tradition. There were just a few elders that still had that knowledge inside of them. And a few young people stood up 
And we really said, we don't want this anymore. We want to be Yawanawa again. We want the tradition back. They stood up. They basically kicked out the missionaries of the land mm. and stood for that tradition. And they entered uh, a one-year diara of their most sacred plant called Muka, mm. which they say is the true preparation to be able in the space to become a spiritual leader, mm. to become a person that can hold ceremonies, to become a leader of a village, to become a healer, to become a medicine man, to become a teacher. That one year the of Muka is their big step, mm. major step, very clear step that has happened to many generations in the last centuries, millennia, to come to that place. Mm. And three people stood up and after 40 years of that Diyata not happening, they did it again. And the, those three elders that were still present in that time, they start to teach them, they start to remember that, and slowly the tradition came back. Mm. And what happened, like, let's say five years after that, you know, once they learned again how to use the medicines, slowly start all ceremonies, you know, because there were no ceremonies in the tribe for like maybe over a decade, two decades. Mm. Then Western people came. And when Western people came, they came with many things. You know, money started to come in for those people. Mm. Uh, gifts started to come in for those people. They started to build bigger houses. They started to have different clothes. Their children had food, you know. And maybe six years ago, the people in the tribe said about those three men that were going to do that, said, why are you doing that? That, that time has passed. Like, mm. we are not those people anymore. Forget about it. Don't, don't go back to these practices. Just, it, it's gone. And those people were drinking alcohol and like listening to music on big speakers and having parties in the village. Um, but those people stood for the tradition. Mm. But then like six years later, when they saw the benefits coming in to these people that have done these dieras, then those people wanted the same benefits. Mm. So what happened? Some of those Indians start to put a feather crown on their head, yeah. take a guitar in their hand, have a bottle of medicine in their hand, and I'm a shaman. You know, ah. come to me, I lead ceremonies, I'm an indigenous person, right. I lead you to these ceremonies. And what the tribe told me, like, they are charlatans. Mm. They have not done the work to come to the place to lead the ceremony. And they're just looking for that money. They're just looking for that kind of recognition, that power. You know? They're looking maybe for sexuality with women that come to the ceremonies. Right. And I said, that's a very dangerous um, direction to watch, they told me. And I saw that happening. I see that happening in the Western world, mm -hmm. you know, also in next stand. Many people are leading ceremonies that might not have that preparation. Mm. Also many people, luckily, are leading ceremonies that have done that kind of preparation. So the past is very cl clearly carved out. This is a past that many people have worked before us in the last centuries. Mm. It's a very easy, clear path, completely carved out. It's easy to walk, mm. but simple to walk it's simple to walk not easy right? it's not easy okay, to go just checking that. I want to yeah. make sure it's you're right so it's, it's simple to know where the path is mm. but it's a big challenge to go to that path mm. I've done a year and two months of the other mm. till now mm. and I will keep doing the other in my life because it has been so transformational so humbling um, very diff difficult processes sometimes mm. but indigenous people say that is the way to come into the place to lead a ceremony responsibly mm. So, to go back to the ancient traditions and there ask the questions, how you get to the place to, to do that? I think it's a very good place to start mm. and then to take those steps, walk that path. And yeah, I think that's a very responsible way to go. 
So Dennis, um, from all the ceremonies you've done, you have plenty of experience. So what are some of the criteria they use to find the perfect, the proper facilitator for those who are listening? Yeah, um, so I think what's really good is just to ask if you're going to new um, experience some questions. And even before you ask some questions, what's really good to know about connecting with plant medicines the indigenous people say working with a plant medicine you're actually working with the spirit of the medicine not like ayahuasca you're working with the spirit of the plant no, abuela ayahuasca grandmother ayahuasca this, this great being that's behind that drink that you drink this, this drink is almost this medicine almost like a gateway to connect with that spirit and they say this spirit is singing all the time it's like a calling that she sings out so it's first of all important to hear that calling. And that calling is not a calling that you hear with the human ears. No, it's a calling that comes to you in several ways, by reading a book, hearing somebody talk about it, having a friend, having an experience, like, oh wow, yeah, that's something I would like to do one day. That's the calling of the medicine. Listen to that calling. If you don't feel the calling, then the medicine is not for you. So also, if you talk about it to other people, and you talk about it and you feel the other person don't have the calling, there's no need to convince them or to pull them in the experience. Let everyone have their own calling. So first step, see if you feel the calling to go into the experience. Never go into the experience because your friends are going, or your family, or like it's a business trip from your company, or anything like that. Or someone pressuring into it. Exactly. Yeah, it's the total opposite of why you should go into ceremony with. Yeah, it's not let's do the next experience. That's not a good reason to go. Mm-hmm. Hear the call of the medicine. If you're listening to this and like, oh, I don't know what it means, then you have not heard the call. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. First step. Mm-hmm. And second, if you go, okay, where can I do that? And then this moment, there's so many places in the world where you can do ceremonies, to go to retreats. It's sometimes difficult for people to find a place that's in integrity, that's where it's held by people that know what they're doing, at least to a certain amount. Um, so ask questions and I think a few questions that are really important to artists like are you connected to any tradition any lineage you know like in, in the medicine world there are several traditions with ayahuasca for example it's the Santo Daimi Unial de Vegetal but these are lineages with long traditions and the people that are there holding those type of works they went through several processes to get to that place so you can trust that so if there's a lineage behind it you know that's a good um guideline of knowing that the place is safe mm. it's well held mm. or like maybe have you studied with a certain tradition have you spent time with an indigenous tribe have you done the edas like what's your study where have you studied where have you learned this that's a good question to ask because not everybody is connected to a tradition like that but maybe they studied in the Amazon with people or with other people and followed a certain path to get to that place so that you know it's not just somebody Having had a handful of ceremonies, learned 10 songs, found some medicine, and is holding a ceremony. So I think really finding their background a little bit, mm. it's two. Mm. And then the most important, three, trust your intuition. Mm. Because even when all your friends have gone there and had an amazing experience, and you come to that place and you sit in front of the facil- facilitator, and he or she offers you a cup of medicine, and your whole body says no, trust that intuition and step away never go on a ceremony that you don't trust you don't have to explain it to yourself to other people only enter a ceremony when you fully trust the environment when you fully trust the people that are holding you 
because you're going to deep places inside mm. of yourself. Mm. And if you don't feel fully held, that's going to be a very challenging experience. Mm. And wait for the next time. Mm. And trust that timing. Because that will show you that the time is not now yet. Then just wait for next time because something better is waiting for you. Mm. Always follow your intuition. If your intuition says no, then don't go into it. And intuition saying no is something else than having a bit of fear. Right. I was going to ask that question. Great. Because resistance can come up naturally going to those places. Mm -hmm. Because the mind is very powerful. The mind wants to be in control. And going to these experiences, one of the first teachings of these medicines might be to let go of that control. Mm -hmm. So feel out if it's just resistance. Because then it's sometimes good to go to a little bit of that resistance. But resistant is something else than your intuition telling you these people that are holding the ceremony are not. But how do you discern the resistance versus the, the intuition? And it, I know it's, it, we can have, probably have a whole other podcast talking about it, but in a, in a, like how would you advise someone to actually discern the fear, the resistance versus the inner calling of saying no? So for example, my first ceremonies. Mm -hmm. After my first ceremony, I had a huge resistance because I did not have the experience that I wanted. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'm never going to do this again. Mm -hmm. And then I voiced that to the man that was holding the ceremonies. And I listened to his answer. I said, look, I don't think I want to go back in the second ceremony. I, this is not working for me. It's, it's, I don't think it's really, maybe it's even a scam. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't get anything out of this first ceremony. And like, I just want to go home. And he sat there with his beautiful smile and his open eyes. And just the answer he gave me, gave me so much trust in his person. Mm. So there was not anything I felt from him. He didn't go into any like, trying to shift my mind or like feeling attacked or something like that. He was just seeing my resistance and he gave a beautiful answer towards resistance that really helped me to go through it. Mm. So I've, then I knew, okay, this is something inside of me. It's not something inside of him. Mm. So ask questions, go into a conversation mm -hmm. and send an email before a ceremony to like, okay, this is what's coming up. How would you work with that? Mm. And listen to the answer. Mm. If the answer comes from any place of feeling defensive from the facilitator, mm. then ah, there you something go. there. Right. But if it's an answer that supports you going through that resistance, mm. then you can see what's actually happening inside of me. Mm. So that could be one way to find mm. it out. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. So there were three, is there a fourth? I think three is enough. Three is enough? Okay, cool. And one of the things I tell people is that, and I love how you articulated it, one of the things I tell people is that going to ceremony is similar to going to spiritual surgery, right? In some ways, it's even more important than finding a doctor. Because ceremony work, you go into the deepest part of who you are, the, the subconscious. Parts of you that you may have suppressed parts of you that you may have avoided really looking at it. <clears throat> so it's super important that you actually find someone, as you said, that, that have you feel safe and held. Um, mixing analogy a little bit, it's almost also like finding your spouse, your partner. There's someone perfect for you, but not everyone's perfect for you. Right? It's like that. So it's, a lot of time it's not just the, the training, the experience, the testimonials, a lot of it is a resonance level. And if you don't feel resonant with a particular facilitator, that's okay. There's probably another circle, another facility that's perfect for you. So, to each his own. So, thank you so much for sharing your answer. Mm -hmm.
Can you tell us a little bit about your journey doing dieta? This is my, I haven't done dieta myself, so I can't really, but I would imagine this, right? Plant medicine is a non-specific amplifier of who you are, your light and your shadow, from my personal mental model. So what I've heard during the dieta process is you actually going to drink the medicine every day yourself, else like remotely. And in my mind, I'm thinking, man, it's difficult enough to drink medicine with groups, pure support, right? <laughs> with guidance. It's super advanced to me um, to do it alone in the dark by yourself in the remote part of the jungle. So just walk us through a little bit about the, the dieta process um, mechanically. What's the mechanics of the dieta process as well as what are some of your personal journey, the internal grappling of facing your um, internal <laughs> light and shadow in the dark by yourself? Like I, This is my, my guess, my speculation. So if you can tell us a little bit more from your personal experience, that would be useful. Yeah. First of all, the dietas in different traditions are, might be completely different. Mm. Like the diet of Mukha is very specific to the, the, the tradition of the Yawanama. Mm. A big step, one year the other. It's, it's a massive step. Mm. And not many people have done that step. Um, other types might have different you know, ways that they found in their history to mm. do that. Mm. So I can speak about the deities of the, of the Yawanawa. Sure. And there you go into a place outside of the village. Mm -hmm. You know, I built a house outside of the village let's say half an hour walking and people are taking care of me like in the sense of like making food and making the kaisuma or the drink mm -hmm. I could drink mm -hmm. you know, giving me the, the, the plans giving me guidance giving me teachings so it's not in complete isolation oh, okay. people are there okay. the teachers the guides that lead you to the theater mm -hmm. are guiding you okay and so okay good yeah, good to know that's good to know <laughs> good to know but yeah in the ceremony those people are not going to hold you in a sense as you might go as a participant to a ceremony where people really guide you hold you lead you through that process because one basics of holding space for other people is to learn to hold the space for yourself yeah absolutely and there's only one way to do it it's in those ways mm. you know so that's that's a learning curve because what they told me like yeah it's easy to say yeah when you are a spiritual leader you know, then I will be responsible with my power and when I'm a spiritual leader then I will be responsible with my sexuality when I'm a spiritual leader then I will be responsible for all the negative energies that move inside of me mm. but that's not how it works mm. you start now right and you work with those forces inside of yourself and once you learn to understand them face them integrate them facing your own shadow mm -hmm. embracing your own shadow really stepping into the place of power of holding that mm. owning that learning how to tame those forces then and only then they say you can slowly start to hold that space for other people because mm. then by true experiencing that inside of yourself you understand much more what's happening inside of the other people mm. so you're still supervised just not supported in that way gotcha yeah. okay cool so you're supported in a way but in a certain way, much less supported right. than somebody holding your hand going to a sound. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I do a little sharing myself. I started boxing for the last few months. It's one thing to, uh, in my mind, 
I can go into the ring. It's easy to watch TV and make comments about the boxers in the ring. It's very different. Want to learn how to fight in a ring? Similarly, you got to step into the ring and actually fight. <laughs> and, and is supervised. There's trainers around and give me guidance and everything. But nonetheless, I, I need to step into the ring and actually practice that practice. Hmm. So can you share with us a little bit of the internal journey during the dieta? What did you have to grapple with or face that you didn't particularly like, but you were like, what did you learn from that process? Yeah, I mean, what you say now or just discover boxing is, is really beautiful. And I think that might be a difference between having knowledge mm. and wisdom. Because mm. knowledge can be just having information, watching, seeing, reading, knowing in that way. But if you combine that with experience, having gone through all that yourself, really stepping in that ring and knowing what it is to be in a fight, mm. then wisdom plus knowledge, mm. uh, no, knowledge plus experience mm -hmm. becomes wisdom. Mm -hmm. And wisdom is something very precious, mm. which can only come from experience. So you have to earn it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> let's see what I can share about one of my ideas. But... Um, Yeah, my second long dieta was six months. Mm. I took the saliva of an anaconda. Mm. I, um, Is it toxic? No. Okay. You don't feel it, you don't taste it, you don't smell it. Uh, no psychoactive effects. Okay. But <laughs> big force that shifts many things in your life. Really? Interesting. And so I went into that. And in that time, in the tribe, when I was just two months in my dieta, one of the elders, Tata, started to end his life. He fell, broke his nose, went through a very difficult process, and he went to the hospital in, in the big city close. The hospital found some things and said there was nothing they could do. So they flew him back in a helicopter to the tribe. And I was there in the village, half an hour walking outside, and the whole village was basically next to the bed of the elder, taking care of him and, and guiding his passage, you know, that we call death. So I was in the forest, alone, not with people guiding me. So I felt abandoned, I felt betrayed, I felt many things, strong emotions came up. And it was a really challenging period for me. I lost 12 kilos of weight, so I was mm. very weak. Mm. You know, to walk that half an hour to the village, I was exhausted. Many times I stood up quick. I would be dizzy, like having to hold myself to something, not to fall. Mm. Um, yeah, so I went through many emotions. And then I came to the realization, like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this dieta to learn to help people. Mm -hmm. to support people mm -hmm. through difficult processes. Mm -hmm. There's a difficult process happening here, mm -hmm. a very difficult process. One of the elders of the tribe, you know, the most revered Pajé shaman of the tribe, one of the last two shamans is dying, mm. and the whole tribe is there. What am I doing here, mm. pitying myself, mm. going into these states of desperation and abandonment and, and many things? And so... That was a huge lesson for me. So when I came back to the U.S. What was the lesson? The lesson was to really show up mm. and to not let my own inner process of feeling abandoned and betrayed and you know all these things that were coming up mm. guide me in my actions and my words and my judgments. 
but to really remember what was my intention of doing it mm. is to learn to help people mm -hmm. there was a whole tribe that needed help in so many ways because they went to uh, one of the most difficult periods of the last decade mm. losing Tata mm -hmm. and so I even the relationship with my teacher was very challenging in this time because I felt that abandonment that betrayal and it brought when I came back to that realization and I felt so sorry for my the way I had shown up. Mm. I felt so sorry that I had gone completely in my own world uh, and not, you know, had been in support of what was happening there. Mm. So that opened beautiful conversations and I apologized deeply and he apologized deeply also for not honoring the commitment that we did have. Mm. And it, it entered a whole new deeper level of a relationship. Mm. And it really took me out of that, those negative feelings. Mm and went much more into compassion, mm. went much more into gratitude mm. and seeing the journey as a huge gift and a teaching mm. instead of seeing that journey as um, a time where I was lost and betrayed and left alone and abandoned and yeah, those feelings. Mm. So to go through that for like three months, that was a big teaching. Mm. It was a difficult time. Absolutely, it was one of the most difficult times of my life, but also many gifts came from that. So how are you taking that gift, that lesson, into your everyday life now? Especially as a space holder for others to go through that as well, right? Because very easily, because now the role is flipped. This person, whoever your students, clients are, they may be going through something deeply and it's very easy to blame you <laughs> for not showing up for them or whatever it may be, right? Especially, you know, it's a um, you know, coach-client experience uh, relationship as well, right? So, so now the position is flipped. So how are you able to uh, take it, that lesson, a very beautiful lesson into your d everyday life? That's uh, a big question, but maybe one way to answer that is like to always keep connecting with my intention of why I'm doing something mm. and to know that once I enter an agreement with somebody, mm. I'm responsible for that, what happens in that time of agreement mm. till the end. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't abandon that before the end is there. Mm. And so to stand for that and to whatever happens inside of me, mm. that's let's say secondary mm. because that agreement that I entered by leading people to a process that's a very sacred agreement that I mm. always want to hold mm. and I think that's integrity mm. like it's part of being professional it's part of being a professional you yeah. can say like that and part of being a, a true professional is integrity mm -hmm. that the words you speak mm. and the accents you put mm. are really in alignment mm. and the thoughts that you have even ideally as well because once that is all in alignment, then you're in integrity. So that the other brought much more clear to me know what it is to be in integrity. Mm. And if something happens, like let's say something strong like that happens, mm. to open full, open, transparent communication, mm. to explain what's happening, mm. and maybe to change uh, an agreement or anything like that, mm -hmm. but to be always open and transparent. Mm. And not to just you know, step away without open communication. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's one of the things I always admire um, 
people who have taken the healer's path. Actually, that's one of my realizations in um, an ayahuasca ceremony. It's difficult enough to live um, this human life. It is actually even more difficult to take a healer's path, from my point of view, right? Because not only you're handling your own internal state, your own affairs, grappling with your own whatever is happening inside your head, now you're taking on somebody else's. And let me actually also expand the definition of healer a little bit more. It's more challenging to, to, to be a leader because now you're responsible for someone else. If you are an entrepreneur, if you're a parent, if you are a friend in the, in the, in the deepest way, you're now taking on someone else's stuff. So curious to know your thought, like how, why did you pick this healer's path? <laughs> because it's, one may say, relatively speaking, it's easier to go into an orchestra, play your thing, and then you go home and you're done, right? It's another, to, another level up to actually now I'm taking the healer's path. So tell us a little bit about the journey from being a player versus, that's not the right word, being a, a, a musician, employee, contractor, to now healer, taking on someone else, willingly stepping into someone else, you know, taking on someone else's uh, pain, suffering, whatever they're dealing with. So here you touch on something really beautiful, and that's very connected to the path of the others. Because that's exactly what indigenous people told me, like, to become to that place, to be a leader in the bigger sense of the world, mm. you have to go to several steps. And the first step is to have personal leadership, mm. to become the leader of yourself. Mm. And those diadas, and the process I described just a little bit is now, is a big part of that. To really become the leader of yourself, mm. so you can control all the forces that move inside of you. But can you control the forces inside of you, though? I don't. It's not about like being hundred percent able to control mm -hmm. them, um, and it's also not controlling in a, let's say a sense of the word that's like you know with force and, and forcing somebody in a certain direction or forcing yourself in mm -hmm. a certain direction. Mm -hmm. But it's more having control, like you have control over your hands. Now you can move your fingers when you decide to move, mm. and you cannot move your fingers when you don't decide mm. to move them. Mm. That's a certain control you have over you know, your, all the things you have on your body. Mm. You know, we have certain control over our body. Mm. So you can also have certain, um, let's say mastery maybe, mm. over your internal process, mm. and learning to observe it, mm. but not learning to be driven by those mm. inner processes. Mm. That's personal mastery. Mm. And it has a lot to do with all the body holes, the food you put in your mouth, you know, the drinks you put in your mouth, the substances you take, the words you listen to, the music you listen to, the things you choose to see. Mm. Now all that is becoming holy. Mm. Because becoming holy, in the truest sense of the word, is having full control of over all your body holes. Mm. That's personal leadership. Mm. And that's the, they told me it's your first layer of inner leadership. First layer, okay. Personal All leadership. Right. Then the second, and you don't have to be like 100% master of mm. that, no, uh -huh. but it's, it's a very first step sure. that you have to study. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a constant study. Yeah. And then exactly as you say, the second step is going into your friends, your family, and 
becoming like a leader in that sense or becoming an example in that mm. sense for people you know, mm. a living example of what's possible so people get inspired people you have conversations with people and things start to shift like in your family your relationships your friends like that kind of it's the second layer of leadership mm. and then they say and only then because this let's say bigger leadership to be like a spiritual leader or a leader of a nation or a leader of a tribe or you know whatever leadership you want to put there can only be bestowed upon you from something much bigger you know, from the great spirit or whatever you say after you have reached a certain level of mastery in those two mm. and what you see now with many leaders in this world and we can call many examples of that that have not that personal leadership right. and they are in the place of being a bigger leader right. of countries of governments of big companies right. they do not have that level of personal leadership right. you see how messy it gets how much man how messy how messy yeah because yeah. mm -hmm. they bring their own stuff mm -hmm. so much into that space they project yeah. they project mm -hmm. and so those steps personal leadership you know stepping into leadership of your family then going to greater places of leadership mm. say that are the steps the responsible steps you know to get into that place mm. where you'll not be governed by those forces inside you know which can be power money and sexuality mm. Uh, you, so Confucius. Are you aware of this Chinese philosopher Confucius? Okay, so he said, "Qijia, So it means personal mastery, household, country, and then world. Exactly, exactly that. It's a fractal relationship. Exactly. Yeah. I think many ancient uh, traditions have something in that direction, and. Yeah, so beautiful to hear that. Mm. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Let's see. Mm. So I'm curious, in your coaching program, microdosing, to be more specific, you don't just give them uh, this ayahuasca vine and say, all right, take this three times or take this once a day, good luck. What do you give them as part of the the service, the, the the transferring of knowledge to empower them to um, move through the different spaces? Because I'm, I'm I'm assuming, but I'm projecting right now. It's not just here's ayahuasca, good luck, right? There's there's a lot more there. So if you can share a little bit of the methodology that you use to really guide them through the different spaces, that would be very useful. Yeah. Uh, thank you for asking that question. Yeah. Because that has been a question that I've been you know, studying for a long time. Mm. And what I, I think can tell. <laughs> you embody it. Yeah. Thank you. So the program as it is now and will keep evolving, hopefully, is, is as following. It has a few components. And one component is the microdosing. We'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. But what's really important, first of all, when you enter a journey, is where would you like that journey to take you. Mm. What's, what's your goal? What's the direction that you want to go to? Mm. And that setting out that direction for your journey, that's setting very clear intentions of what you want to call in. Mm -hmm. So the very first step of the program is to help people to get clear on their intentions. Mm. Like, what do you actually want? Mm. And we guide them to that process. I wrote a workbook around that, how to set clear intentions in mm. an easy way, super easy steps. So we come to a set of 20 to 25 intentions. Mm. 
mm. and they can happen in several aspects of your life. It can mm. be your relationships, your health, your career, your you know, wealth, abundance, your spirituality. No, we have nine aspects of your life that we divide it mm. and you set intentions in each one of them or just in one or a few of them that you want to concentrate on. And so we guide people, we teach people how to set a clear set of intentions. We help them with that. We, we give some comments, suggestions, till we have that set really in a beautiful way that people feel really, yeah, this is what I want to call into my life. That's the very first step. Mm. Second step is that we help people to go on building and cultivating a daily spiritual practice. As we spoke of before, mm. what's the fuel that keeps the, your journey going mm. is to stay connected to this bigger field. Mm. You know, and that is having a daily spiritual practice. For me, that's a key. You know, and anyone that wants to go on that path. Because as I said before, just taking sacred medicines will most probably not going to take you to the place that you want to take to. It's very disappointing, I'm sure, for some people to hear that. No? Very important. <laughs> and actually, when you shift your perception around that, it's not disappointing at all. Mm. It's very empowering. Mm. Because that means you have the power to make the shifts. Mm. Because if you come out of the journey and somebody else has made the shifts for you, you can feel, oh, so without that power, I'm not able to shift? Yeah, they're on Where does it leave me? Yeah. Exactly. Mm. You're your own teacher. You're your own master. Nobody's a master of you. Mm. So the, the medicines, as a teacher... Mm. come into that way mm. so build a daily spiritual practice is a big key mm. of that own level of mastery mm. that own level of leadership mm. so we help people go into a daily spiritual practice first with guided meditation super easy you know connecting with love connecting with trust connecting with abundance mm. to slowly shift that state of being that we talked about before mm. and from that place when you have a very clear intention when you have slowly starting a daily spiritual practice with all the hurdles that it comes with, doing it a day, two days, and missing a day, missing two days, life coming in, traveling, you know, many things can happen. Mm-hmm. We are there, we're guiding people, there are coaching calls, you know, there's email support, there's a Facebook group, there's a lot of support where a whole team, it's not just me holding the program, it's a whole team, you know, there are beautiful people on the team that really guide the participants to all that. Mm-hmm. Then, let's say two, three weeks in, then the microdosing comes. So people don't start with the microdosing. Oh, they don't. They wait a little bit to ah, set the I whole see. stage mm. for the medicine to come. Mm. So then two weeks in, three weeks in, we you know, supply people with divine only tea. Mm. Uh, very high quality, beautiful medicine made in the right way. Mm. Um, and then we teach them how to microdose. What's the right dosage? Because the dosage in microdosing is very important. If you take too much, it might be overwhelming for people. If mm. you take too less, you might feel nothing. Mm. So that sweet spot, you know, that's what we teach people how to get to that sweet spot. Because mm. microdosing, again, is really taking a small dose of a substance so you don't feel its immediate effects. Now, what many people are looking for in this time in a microdose is to feel an effect immediately. Right. And that's not microdosing. That's basically doing a mini ceremony. That's right. It's something different. That's right. So we guide people to find the right dosage in the microdosing. Mm. How do you do that? How do you know, like, if you don't mind going to a little bit, a little bit? How do you, how how does one supposed to feel when they hit that sweet spot? So, I would say for microdosing for the first three weeks, two weeks, four weeks, five weeks, maybe six weeks, depends how sensitive a person is. Mm. You should not feel anything. Mm. So a very good guideline, if you feel anything, 
Too much. much. Yeah. And then when you go to that first phase of microdosing, let's say a month, a bit more, a bit less, depending on the person, then know that state of flow is coming in. Mm. And that's what we're looking for. So the first phase is just really letting the medicine come into your body, your body welcoming the medicine, like saturating your system, and then going into that state of flow. Mm. So we navigate people how to do that. Mm. And then the second stage is when you're in that state of flow, how you can keep that state of flow. So then we teach people to keep the microdosing going. And at one point we teach them how to go off so that the daily spiritual practice can become the fuel to keep that journey going. Mm. So we don't teach people to be dependent mm. on the medicine. Mm. No, we teach people to empower them mm. and to do it without the microdosing afterwards. Mm. So after the program, people get a whole library of spiritual practices mm. in video mm. so they can continue mm. in that way by themselves. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. I love it. And the, the overall length of the program is 90 days? 90 days. Mm. 90 why, days. why 90 days? Why not 60 days? Why not 45 days? Mm, very why good not question. six months? 90 days is a really good time to establish a new habit. Mm. And why is that? Because the, what is happening in our physical body that's carrying, let's say, our state of being, that's carrying our belief system. Mm. If you study that, your blood and especially your red blood cells mm. are very important in that because your red blood cells now carries a lot of oxygen into the body mm. and carries a lot of toxins out of the body mm. but also those red blood cells as the yogic teachings tell us they carry your belief system mm. and the moment that the red cell is born in the bone marrow mm. it carries the belief system from that moment oh interesting never heard that before yeah that's beautiful and the life cycle of that cell is 90 days so if you go through that whole life cycle of a red blood cell mm. with one practice, mm. that's a very secure way to build a new habit. Mm. I like it. I like it a lot. So in going back to your intention setting, because in my mind, 25 intention, that's a lot of intention. So do you help them to pick one and focus on for the 90 days? Or mm-hmm. literally pick one in each area and then focus on the 90 days? How does we, that? we help them to create a set of 20 to 25 intentions. Ah. And actually for the people that are listening, uh-huh. that are thinking, I would love to have a set of intentions. Yeah. If they go to our website, mm-hmm. ayaflow.com, yeah. there you can download for free as a gift an intention setting workbook mm-hmm. that I wrote to help people go to the process. Mm-hmm. So in that book, I describe what are the nine areas of your life. You can choose one of those areas. You can choose all of them. You can choose a few of them, whatever you want to concentrate on. Mm. And then easy steps, how to come to a place that you have such a list of intentions. Mm. And because the program is 90 days, and I really know it's a lifelong journey, Mm. 20 to 25 intentions have been proven to be a really good amount. Mm. Now one intention can be good to go into a ceremony, for example, Mm -hmm. or to a much shorter experience. But 20 to 25 is a really good amount to go to such a period, which is 90 days. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. Is there anything else that you, we haven't covered that you really wanted to cover in our time together? Mm, I think that place of personal leadership, mm. you know, that's, I hope is something that people can take from our conversation. Mm. Because... Whatever governments are doing, whatever bigger companies are doing, whatever is happening in the world on a bigger level, your choices, your words, your actions matter. Mm. And if we all make different choices, mm. have different actions, speak different words, mm. that's a beautiful way, of, first of all, to shift your world. Mm. Because changing the world 
is not changing all the things outside of you. Changing the world is changing your world. Right. And that's that's empowerment. Yeah. And I hope that that's what people can feel from our conversation. Yeah. Because we all have that capacity to change your world. Absolutely. Trust that. Believe that. Mm-hmm. And know that all your dreams, all your visions are absolutely true. They're the most truest things that you might ever find in your life. Mm-hmm. So trust them. Follow them. Take the steps to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. And for those of you who are listening, I asked the question of what are some of the criteria that uh, Dennis used f- to evaluate your teacher, your facilitator, your shaman, your paje. A big part for me that you didn't mention but you so, um, so much illustrated is embodiment. For me, how you do one thing is how you do everything. And if someone tells me, hey, do this, do what I say, but then they go out and start to not acting accordingly, to me that's a big red flag. Because then I can't really trust <laughs> the wisdom, right? Because then, then it's on the theoretical level, it's on the sharing the knowledge level. And you may be able to is- elicit some experiences from ceremony or whatever, but ultimately what I'm looking for for any kind of guru, teacher, is embodiment. So thank you so much for really embodying everything that you share through your words, through your experience, but also I hope people really hear the sincerity, the authenticity, um, the work that you have taken on, Dennis, to really illustrate what it means to live in body life. You are definitely, uh, I'm an engineer by training, so operationalizing everything that you learn. So it's not just some empty words that you say. So thank you so much for being here on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been an honor and a pleasure to be here. Very grateful for the invitation. Yeah, thank you. All right, listeners, thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions about what we discussed, anything that needs to be answered, please go to noblewarrior.com forward slash group. We'll be happy to answer those questions there. Take care now. Bye.